One of the most frequent comments I receive is about how similar my children look. There's a likeness in my family that is unmistakable. I've been told on more than one occasion, it appears as if I am cultivating some kind of clone army. And to which I usually tell people, you are on to me. Shh. Families have a tendency to look alike, but not just physically. Right? My kids are going to be a lot more like me and Chelsea than they ever want to be. Like, they're going to look like us. They're going to pick up phrases from us. They're going to pick up these weird little idiosyncrasies from us. They're going to be weird, probably, is what I'm saying. But, but they're going to pick up all kinds of things from us. Likewise, you can probably think about, some of you are older, the day that came, and those of you that younger, there's a day coming where you're going to have this same experience. You're going to do something, and all of a sudden, it's going to dawn on you. And you're going to say to yourself, I have become my mother. I have become my father. How did this happen? Families tend to look alike. We look like the family we belong to. And when we become Christians, the Bible tells us that we become adopted into the family of God in a way that's entirely transforming. We move from being children of wrath and slaves to sin to being children of God and slaves to righteousness. We become free in Christ. And we begin to look more and more like Jesus. We have before us today in Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37, is an old family picture of our great, 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 however many greats you need, spiritual ancestors. Those who have come before us in the faith. And the family likeness in the picture jumps off the page. It's seen most clearly their unity together and the responsibility they take for one another. And those will be the two parts of our outline this morning. We'll look at how they are united and how we are called to be united, as well as how we are called to take responsibility for one another. Main idea this morning, what I want you to walk away with, is that the family of God is united together and responsible for one another. And the exhortation follows suit. It's pretty simple. Live like family. We want to live like the family we've been adopted into by Jesus' wonderful work. Let's pray and we'll get started. Father, we thank you that you've made community the context in which we will grow into maturity. We thank you that our relationships with one another help us to see you more fully and to be more fully who you've called us to be. We pray that you would help us to spur one another on towards good deeds and love, that you would give us clean hands, pure hearts, and that you would stir us up with holy affections for you. Pray that you would help us to hear your word, to be shaped by it, and that we would leave here differently than we came in. Pray that you would overthrow 
routines that quench your spirit, that you would break apart our normal views of what church should be, that you would call us into being the family that you've adopted us into. Change us this morning, we pray, more and more into the image of Christ and in his name. Amen. A bit of review is necessary so we can see where we're situated in the book of Acts. Uh, We've summarized the whole book this way, that Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and the church goes out. Admittedly, the vast majority of the book has to do with the church going out and witnessing to the fact that Jesus has come to earth, lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, risen from the dead, and then ascended into heaven. And all of that stuff kind of happens before Acts and in in the first part of Acts, right? In chapter 1, Jesus is resurrected and he's teaching about the kingdom of God. And he tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus then ascends and in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes down. The disciples start to speak in all these various languages of the people who have come into Jerusalem for the Pentecost festival and they're like, hey, what is going on? Why are these guys able to speak in my language fluently? I mean, these are backwoods, bayou Galileans. They shouldn't be able to speak perfect Mandarin and French. This is weird. And Peter stands up and says, the reason that this is happening is because Jesus is Lord and Messiah. Jesus, the one who was crucified by the religious leaders, has poured out his spirit, he's risen from the dead, and he is seated on the throne of David where he rules and reigns. And you, friends, are guilty of sin. And they all agree. They're cut to the heart and they say, well, what do we do in response to this Jesus? And Peter tells them, repent. Turn from your sins and be baptized. He tells them to put their faith in Jesus. And so they do by the thousands. Things are are going really well. The church has been established. And we find ourselves at the beginning of Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John are on their way to regular prayers in the temple when they see a lame beggar at the gate. Beautiful. See this broken man outside of the beautiful gate and he is asking for money. And he looks at Peter. He knows a mark when he sees one. And he says, hey, Give me some money. And Peter says, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and walks. He hangs out with Peter and John a lot after that. He's leaping through the temple. And people, they they take notice. And this miracle of Peter and John serves the message of Christ. And so Peter begins proclaiming Jesus once more. And once more, people begin turning from their sins and following Jesus. He tells them, when you turn from your sins, they'll be wiped out. And the people continue to put their faith in Christ. Then, as they're still teaching about Jesus, they're confronted in the temple by Sadducees. This is at the beginning of chapter 4. They are arrested, and they're taken overnight, and then they're brought up before the Sanhedrin, and they say, but by what power have you healed this lame man? Right? They're on trial for healing somebody. It's really ridiculous. And Peter, when he could have just bowed out and said, uh, we healed by the power of the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac. And everybody would have said, okay, get on with your day. 
Even though he could have sidestepped the question like a great politician and said, let's talk about my economic plan. He answered boldly. He says, I'm doing this by the power of Jesus, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead. He's the cornerstone that you rejected. But he's the key that makes the whole building stand up. This Jesus is the only way to God. No one comes to the Father except through him. The Sanhedrin convenes and says, hey, these guys are pretty bold. <laughs> They've been with Jesus. And they tell him to shut up and keep that to themselves because they would like to keep their power rather than consider the miracle or the message. And Peter and John say, we, we can't keep quiet about this. There's a way to have peace with God. We must speak. And they get back with the church and they know that suffering is coming, but instead of praying for deliverance, they pray for courage and for boldness. And they say, God, help us to continue to be bold in our proclamation of Christ Jesus, crucified for the sins of men and raised for their justification. Help us to get this message out. And God, in response, lets them feel his holy presence once more, and the whole place shakes. The place is shaken, and the disciples are strengthened. And then all of a sudden, the narrative is interrupted by this little snapshot of the church. It's a social media post in some ways. Uh, if you think of how people only post like the highlights of their life on social media, like there's, there's never the married couple fighting. Like, I had this great fight with my spouse today. We really hated each other. Really one-upped them with some of my zingers. Listen, now, there's never like the video of the kid throwing a temper tantrum. Tried to have fun with my kid today, but he ruined everything and I kind of hate him right now. Like, nobody posts that kind of stuff. It's always, always like the best. You know, everybody's always like on the back of an elephant in some foreign land. Everybody's smiling. And they've just eaten a steak and a nice glass of wine. And it looks really awesome. And you think, why doesn't my life look like that? But you've got to remember, just like a social media post, there's, there's some mess behind that. Life's not perfect. And this is the second post that Luke has, has put in Acts, and he'll give us a couple more. The first one came in Acts 2.42, right? And, and what he's doing there is he's giving us a picture of some of the beautiful things that are happening in the church. What he's not doing, and this is a misconception, he's not saying the early church was really perfect and you need to try to be perfect like the early church. It's not true. The early church was made up of sinners, just like our church is made up of sinners. The early church is messy, just like our church is messy. Maybe even a little worse. Like, y'all remember going through 1 Corinthians? Like, dude was sleeping with his stepmother. And they weren't doing church discipline, right? And going through 1 Corinthians, I was like, these people need Jesus. Like, what's wrong with them? Okay? And here's what I want you to see. As messy as the early church was, they were able to display God's glory. They were able to give us a beautiful picture of what it looks like to follow God. Likewise, friends, as messed up as we are, we can give the world a beautiful picture of what it means to follow Christ. And some of that beauty is seen in the photograph before us in verses 32 through 37 of Acts chapter 4. Look with me at verse 32. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead, they held everything in common. 
With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was on all of them. Grace kind of permeates this entire section. It's the work of God in their lives that brings about the purposes of God in their community. The thing that most strikes me is that they all believed and were of one heart and one mind or one soul. That's pretty incredible. I mean, when I think of one heart, one mind, and one soul, I go like, I'm married, but we can't agree on what to have for dinner, right? Or what to watch on TV. When was the last time you got around two people and you went, these folks, they agree. They are one in soul and in in mind and and in heart. So I go, well, what does this mean? Like, does it mean if, if we went to the early church and they had knowledge of superheroes and we said, who is the greatest superhero that they would all chant in unison? Like, Spider-Man or Superman, Thanos. Or if you ask them, what, what's the greatest college football team? And they would all shout out like, like West Virginia University. Okay, that one might have happened because they, they had the apostles. No. Uniformity in belief, I'm sorry, that being unified in belief does not mean being uniform in thought. You with me? They're unified in their belief, but that doesn't mean that they're uniform in their thought. And so what they agree about, what they're united in, is these Christian essentials. And so they're going, we're on the same page about Jesus and the testimony of the apostles, but we might have some differences when it comes to political policy, Okay. Let's talk about these things that they're of one heart and one mind and one soul about. First and foremost, they are of one heart about the truth of the gospel. They believe that Jesus is God incarnate, that he came, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, was unjustly sentenced to death, was buried and dead for three days, and on the third day, rose again, victorious over death. They believe that he died in the place of sinners for their sins. They believe that he was raised, victorious over death, and that he can give everlasting life to any who will trust in him. This is the most important Christian essential. Paul tells us as much in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If you don't believe this, you're not a Christian. I don't care what you call yourself. This is the foundation of Christianity. There are some beliefs that are fundamental to being a Christian, that all Christians are united in believing. First, that would be the gospel. Another would be that God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. Another, that we, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but that we belong to God. Another is that God is, exists eternally as three persons, 
God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, equal in power and in beauty and worth. Another would be that all men are created in the image of God and are worthy of dignity, honor, and respect. Yet another would be that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all of humanity is dead in sin because of the first sin of Adam and Eve in which we have continued to live and walk. All of us would agree that we need redemption from that sin and that only God can save us. And the way he does that is through Christ. Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to God and that if his love could somehow overcome his other attributes, then the cross was unnecessary and ugly. But as it is, God is just. There's one way to him, and it's through Christ. These are essential things that Christians everywhere affirm. These are the things we are united in, make us of one heart and one mind. And so, some of the things we do here in order to uh, promote unity and to protect unity are, are when you become a member or when someone's interested in membership, we have them read our, our statement of faith, what we believe, and, and sign and commit to our, our membership covenant, what we promise to do as part of the family of God. Now, the statement of faith, it outlines some of these essential Christian beliefs, but then it goes a little step further and it outlines what we would call our distinctives or Baptist distinctives since we're a Baptist church, right? And when you're affirming that, you're saying, I'm going to join this church and we are going to be united in our belief on not only these Christian essentials, but in some of these secondary issues, right? And so if you want to think about theology or, or, or doctrine, there, you can think of it in maybe like three tiers. Uh, professor used to call it theological triage. And there are our first order issues, which... These are the essentials you have to believe in order to be a Christian. And then there are distinctives. What we can disagree about and still be Christians, but maybe we want to worship in different churches for the sake of unity. And so the example I always use is uh, my best friend is a Reformed Presbyterian. He goes to a PCA church. We agree theologically about just about everything with the exception of infant baptism. We just diverge. And so I say of him that he goes to a true church but it's irregular, or wrong is a harder word there, in its practice of baptism. And he says the same thing of me. That, that I am in a true church, but that my practice of baptism is irregular. And what I want you to see here is that oftentimes it's charged that denominations are divisive and the church is so broken apart, how can there be any Christian unity? That's just misguided thinking. Denominations actually promote unity. The reason that we're in different denominations is because we're going, if we have this confusion about these distinctives, it's going to make it really hard for us to get anything done. And so what we do is we all live, we all move into the Jesus neighborhood of churches where we affirm these Christian essentials, and then we build our houses next to each other, and we build these short fences of distinctives. And I stay on the Baptist side, and my Presbyterian friend stays on the Presbyterian side, and we shake hands over the fence, and we have birthday parties at each other's houses sometimes. Right? We're, we're friends. We're united in the cause of Christ. We are together for the gospel. But we differ in some of our distinctives. These folks are united in their belief. 
And we protect unity, we promote unity in this church by making sure that we are united in our belief about Christian essentials and our Baptist distinctives, which are important, but not, not as, a, as important as essentials. Otherwise, they'd be in that category, right? And so, the question I want to ask you is how familiar, familiar are you with Christian doctrine, with these Christian essentials? As we preach through the Bible, I hope that these, these vital doctrines are, are coming up over and over again and that you're thinking through them. It's one of the reasons we go through the catechism questions on the back of your insert, is we're trying to make sure that we all have a firm grasp on the rudimentary elements of our faith. Because if you don't, it will be really easy for you to be misled. There are plenty of false churches and plenty of false teachers that are hurrying. I mean, they're tripping over themselves to mislead you. They're ready to smooth over some of the rough edges of the Bible in order to promote a fake unity, right? We can get rid of the exclusivity of Christ because that'll help unify us. More people will want to believe that. We can get rid of the bodily resurrection of Christ because, let's be honest, that's not really super believable. And more people can rally around it, so we'll be united. But that's a fake unity. It's not worth anything built upon lies. The best way to guard yourself against false teaching is by knowing the real thing. Right? The best way to spot a forgery is to know that which is authentic. That's how we do it with dollar bills. Like They have that little magic pen, they go over it, and like tells them if it's fake or not. But you have to have uh, enough theology, you have to study the Bible, and if you have to know God enough that you kind of have this little pen instinct where you can spot a forgery or a false gospel right away. So here's, here, here's what you can do. You can look up our statement of faith online, or I can give it to you, some of you don't do the internet, and just work through some of those doctrines and think about it. Read your Bible alongside with it. It's, it's important. Secondly, we do a membership covenant because when we are united to Christ by faith, we're also united together. When we are adopted into the family of God, we become responsible for one another. And our covenant outlines what we promise to do for one another and for God. Because we understand that our love for one another is an expression of our love for God. If we love God, we will love one another. And we see this playing out in these verses before us. Let's, let's read them again. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and of one mind. And no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But instead they held everything in common. With great power the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them. Because all those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, and laid them at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. So because of the you know, misnomers, I have to immediately say, uh, this isn't communism, it's not socialism. Uh, Christians continue to own things. We see later in Acts, people still have houses, and so all here is more general uh, also, uh, we have the sense of this happens over a period of time, and so a need comes up, 
and typically one of the more wealthy goes, I got an extra house or I have this land and then they sell it and they take it to the apostles and they distribute it so everybody has what they want, not what they want, what they need. This isn't, this isn't that. Notice in uh, verse 32, people's possessions are still called their own possessions. In verse 4, uh, when Ananias and Sapphira are being rebuked, Peter tells Ananias, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? And after it was sold, wasn't it at your disposal? And so that it's his possession. He's not forced to give it up. So this, this is not communism. It's not socialism. People have personal possessions. Their giving isn't forced. But here's what I want you to see. It's not communism, but it is church. It's not socialism, but it is family. Being part of the family of God means calling one another brother and sister and meaning it. It means that if you have a need and I can meet it, I'm meeting it. And Barnabas, he he becomes the example of this in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is an incredible act of faith. I mean, Barnabas, he sells his beach house, man. He's got this great beach house, great view of the Pacific Ocean. He goes out there, hangs out a couple months every year. He's got plans to go there. But he looks around and he sees his brothers and sisters in Christ are in need. And he goes, I... I can't have this excess while the rest of my family goes without. He sells that house so that their needs can be met. I wonder, what would people in your life, how would they respond if you had a second home or a second car and you sold it so that the needs of a a church member could be met? Right? Like, I know how it would work in my family. Like, I have a sister... She's pretty well off, so this might, situation might be reversed. But, but, you know, if she had a need, she couldn't pay her mortgage, and I, I sold, a, assuming I had a little bit nicer second vehicle, but, but I sold my second vehicle in order to help her pay her mortgage, my, my family would probably go, that's great! The same situation arrives, arises, and I sell my little bit, you know, my hypothetical, let's say I have a Benz as a second vehicle. I sell that in order to pay the mortgage of, a church member, like my family is going to look at me sideways. What are you doing? It's because there seems to be this disconnect in our Christianity where we view our nuclear family as a higher priority than the family of God. But what Christ has done is he's inverted these. He has said, your primary allegiance is to me and to the family you've been adopted into. It's not that your real family is unimportant. But I have said, the one who doesn't hate father and mother in comparison to their love for me isn't worthy of me. Friends, it's our responsibility to love one another. I'm going to say more on that in a second. I'll just put that in the back of your mind. I know it's a little controversial there. I got ahead of myself. This generosity should mark us. This Jesus-like commitment to one another should mark us. I think sadly, instead of looking like the good shepherd, we look more like the foolish farmer. 
is we're more comfortable with Judas-like greed. Everybody gets defensive when we start coming into passages like this because, you know why? Because we really love my stuff. Oftentimes more than we love other people. You guys do know that story of the foolish farmer. It's one of my children's books. Not like they've taken it out of here and put it in a children's book. Not that it's in a children's book. It's in the book of Luke, uh, in chapter 12. And this is what we read there. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, they're talking to Jesus, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, Who appointed me a judge or an arbiter over you? He then told them, Watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, What should I do since I don't have anywhere to store all my crops? Ah, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, You have many goods stored up for many years. Great 401k. Take it easy. Eat. Drink. Enjoy yourself. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That's how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus talks about anxiety, worry, about trusting God, and then he, he kind of sums up this whole section of teaching in verse 31 of chapter 12. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your Father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old. An inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, do you hear what Jesus is saying? He's saying, don't invest in these temporary things. Don't get too caught up on these things which are just not that important. He's saying, invest in that which is eternal. Care more about people than you do your possessions. Invest in eternity by investing in other people. He said, be generous with what God has made you rich in. how many of you are investing more in other people than you are yourselves? How many of us are making wise investments into the kingdom of God? Are we building, building the kingdom of God with Jesus-like generosity? Or are we building our kingdom with Judas-like greed? We are responsible for caring for one another. Come back to that idea that Jesus calls us to love one another and to be the family of God. I say we're responsible for one another because this is how God has designed Christianity to work. Out of the world, into the church. Adopted into the family of God. Our care for one another is how Jesus' words in Mark 10 are fulfilled. Mark 10, 29 says this. 
There is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel. Let me stop right there. This implies that many of those who follow Jesus will have to leave behind, will have to give up, will have to sacrifice houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, fathers, children, and fields. They'll have to leave those things because they'll be rejected. This will be part of the price of following Jesus. Some of you have had that experience. You're rejected by your family because you followed Christ. This is what Jesus says. He says, I'm worth it. He says, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more, listen, now, at this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields with persecution and eternal life in the age to come. What Jesus is saying is, you're leaving these things, houses, friends, and family, but when you are adopted into the family of God, when you follow me, you are going to receive all of these things a hundredfold right now. You go, how, how is that? Well, it's because as the family of God, we share our possessions. We share our lives. Inside of God's family, I have many spiritual mothers, many spiritual fathers, many spiritual brothers and sisters, many spiritual children. We receive now in this time that blessing of God as we endure persecutions together. We are responsible for one another. Our love for God is expressed in our love and our care for one another. If you don't believe me, let me read to you some of the one another passages in the New Testament. I didn't even, read, didn't even put them all down here. There's more, okay? It's going to seem like a lot. And I don't know how you do any of these without being connected to a local church. John 13, 34. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Romans 12, 5. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Romans 12, 10. Love one another deeply as brothers and sisters outdo one another in showing honor, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, so that there would be no division in the body, but that the members would have the same concern for one another, Galatians 5, 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, only do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. Galatians 6.2, carry one another's burdens. In this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, therefore I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians 4.32, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider 
one another, others, as more significant than yourselves. 1 Thessalonians 4.18, encourage one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.15, always pursue what is good for one another. Hebrews 10.24 and 25, let us watch out for one another and to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. James 5.9, brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another. Do that one again. Don't complain about one another. James 5.16, confess your sins to one another. 1 Peter 4.9, be hospitable to one another without complaining. 1 John 4.7, dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The responsibility we have towards one another comes with being united together in Christ by faith. If we are following Jesus, we will take responsibility for one another. We will be willing to sell our stuff for one another. We will be willing to lay down our lives for one another. And here's the question, friends. Do we lay our lives down for one another like Jesus? Or do we betray one another and abdicate our responsibility to one another like Cain? You guys remember the story of Cain and Abel, right? Pretty early on in Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices to God. Abel uh, takes care of sheep, I think it is, some kind of cattle. Yeah, he gives the firstborn of his flock to God. Cain is a farmer. And he gives some of his produce. And God regards the offering of Abel and not of Cain. And, and this really upsets Cain. The, the Bible says his face fell. And God tells him, won't you be accepted if you do good? But I'm warning you, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, ready to devour you. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain ignores the warning of God, takes Abel into a field, and kills him. God says to Cain in verse 9 of chapter 4, Where is your brother Abel? And Cain replied, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper or guardian? Then God said, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. I'll give you three observations. First, Cain and Abel make very similar offerings to God here. And the difference is, is that Cain offers the minimum. The minimum. What I want you to see is that minimum effort Christianity is a false religion. God doesn't deal with minimum obedience. He doesn't deal with minimum Christians. What can I get by with Christians? Because those aren't Christians. He doesn't do minimum effort. He does maximum effort. You see the difference between Cain's offering is it's, it's the minimum, what he can get away with. You know, this is God's, I got to give it to him. And Abel's, well, he's given the firstborn of the flock. Like, if 
if no more are born, like he might have ended up giving like 50% or something. <laughs> you better be careful. You'd be financial trouble. No, Abel gives everything. And what happens in Genesis is that God sees through the offering to the heart. He sees through their offering to what's going on inside of them. And Abel, he loves God. And Cain, not so much. Minimum effort Christianity is a false religion. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. God requires all of you. He requires maximum effort. Observation number two. Cain should have been his brother's protector and guardian, and instead he is his brother's killer. When God says to Cain, where is your brother Abel? And Cain responds, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer to that question is yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's guardian. You should be about his good. You should be protecting him. You should love him. He's your brother. You should be willing to lay your life down for him. That's not what Cain does. Cain betrays him and kills him. And Abel's blood cries out about this injustice to God. I wonder how many, how many of our brothers and sisters' needs call out to God about the injustice done to them in our churches. That their needs aren't met by people who could meet them. I wonder how many of us, when we see a brother or sister in need, say to ourselves, am I my brother's keeper? They're not my responsibility, God. And that Platitude, which is from hell. God helps those who help themselves. No, friends, that's the opposite of the gospel. God helps the helpless. He helps the poor in spirit. And praise God that he rescues and helps sinful canes like you and me who all too often abdicate our responsibility towards our brothers and sisters in Christ. Praise God for the true and better Abel who saves us from our sins even though we live like devils. That's the third observation that Jesus is the true and better Abel. Like Abel, Jesus lives a life that is entirely pleasing to God. Like Abel, he is betrayed by someone close to him. Like Abel, Jesus is killed by those who should have loved him. And like Abel, Jesus' blood cries out. But Hebrews 12, 12 tells us that Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood called out for justice in the face of injustice. Jesus' blood, well, it calls out for acquittal. See, Jesus, when he died on the cross, he was not demanding that we be punished. 
He was, he was calling out, Lord, let the punishment that should come onto them fall upon me. Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. See, friend, Jesus, he's not calling for your blood. He gave his own so that you might call on him and be saved. So that you might know peace with God. Wayward Christian, he's not mad at you. If you had a hard week, he's not, he's not disowning you. When God adopts someone, he, he adopts them. There's no takebacks. You're his. Non-Christian, he's not mad at you. He just, just wants you to let your guard down so that you can experience his love and come to him. He's saying that, that sin that's got you twisted in knots, it's not satisfying, got you at the end of your rope. Let go of it. Come to me and find rest. When we rest in Christ, we discover that dying to ourselves is happy business. There is not a hint in this text that anyone is really, really sad about giving up their possessions. Like, this isn't explicitly there, but I just got to believe they're having fun, right? It's because they love one another. In accord with 1 John 4.19, we love because he, that's God, first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. I, mean, I just got to believe this is so much fun. That this is such a joy as they're laying down their lives for one another. I mean, I love, like, in this passage, we have the inversion of Cain and Abel. Brothers and sisters are not in competition with one another. They are not murdering one another. They are making sacrifices for one another. They're for one another's good. And it is a beautiful picture of the gospel. This is the family likeness of God. Unity in truth shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Unity in truth and commitment to loving one another. Responsibility for the family. I wonder, friends, can we live a little bit more like the family of God? I think to do that, to be responsible people, we must be relationally involved people. Got to be relationally involved to know one another's needs in order to meet them. Let's, let's have some fun. Let's delight in God. Let's live like the family that we've been adopted into. Let's pray. Father, we lament our sin. We confess our sins of this past week and of this morning and even of this very hour. Forgive us. We are, we are imperfect and we are messy 
We thank you that you love us the same, that you've adopted us into your family and that daily you are raising us up into Christ-likeness. Chisel us more and more into his image by the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Help us to hold fast to the gospel, to the teaching of the apostles, to your word, and to be changed like it, by it. Help us to not merely hear the word, but to do it. Let our doing of it in the midst of this family stand as a beautiful witness to who Jesus is. Let not our good deeds and our love stop here, but extend into our community and to our neighbors that Christ might be known and exalted above all else. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.